Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name is Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. We're back for a new season with 14 fantastic guests lined up ready to share their lives and insights. Plus we've got a brand new game to play to test their Somerset knowledge to the limits. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest this week is a consultant clinical psychologist, writer, flower grower and seed merchant, Grace Alexander. Keeping extremely busy through writing several psychology books during lockdown, building a successful community around the slow flower movement and publishing her first gardening book, Grace brings a thoughtful and profoundly honest perspective to all of life's complexities. On a personal note, Grace was one of the first people I discovered when looking to launch the podcast. Our conversation covers off so many areas I find deeply interesting about our minds and approach to life. And as such, it was a delight to interview her for this episode. I hope you enjoy listening. Grace, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me in your wonderful home, your wonderful garden. What do you know about the history of the building and the space that we're in now? So, although this space looks very old, this space is very new. The house itself, my cottage, is uh, a thatched cottage. Um, It is probably dated from the late 1500s. It's a very small worker's cottage. It's far too small to be lived in by two grown adults and three large dogs. Um, But you take what you can get. Um, And it was the water centre for the village. So we've got the water pump for the village at the front of our cottage and we've got the wash house at the back. And traditionally there was nothing behind that. It was just where the village um, the village used it. And you can see that there's a pathway that goes through my house, which the people would have used to go back and forward. But of course, modern life being what it is, we got back gardens and then we got a bit of a car park. And to hide the car park from the footpath that runs along the hill, they fenced off a bit of sheep field. And so in, oh gosh, 2013, when I bought my cottage, I'd rented it for a bit of time before then, I suddenly sort of inherited this patch of land that nobody wanted. So there was not a scrap of anything except nettles and thistles and docks in here in 2013. And it's now 2021 and there's an orchard and a flower field and some espaliered apple trees and a greenhouse and a squash patch and a dying garden and all sorts of things. Yeah, so it's a strange conglomeration of very, 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 very old and very, 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 very recent in gardening terms. That's fantastic. Um, we will talk quite a lot, I think, later about what, what you're doing here and the vision mm. behind it. But what was it that first attracted you to this part of the world and and this home? Well, um, I originally moved to Somerset because my now husband, then boyfriend, um, who happens to be the brother of my brother's best friend, if that makes sense, uh, and they all lived in Plymouth. And I had a rather London-centric understanding of geography and I thought I could move to Plymouth and work in Taunton. You can't commute that far at all. So I found the job of my dreams in Taunton. I thought this was a perfect match and then realised actually I was going to have to live in Taunton because you can't commute from Plymouth every single day. 
Um, and I originally lived right up in the Blackdown Hills in the middle of nowhere. It was a little shack on the side of a farmhouse. And it was so incredibly beautiful, so incredibly cold. And then one year I got snowed out of my own house for 10 days because it's so remote up there. And so every day when I went to work, I would drive through this village um, because actually, although it's you know quite rural, we're on a, quite a main road, which is the Honiton Road, and they grit it every time. So because it's one of the crucial emergency roads, so I thought, well, I need to live on that road. <laughs> and I would drive up and down past this absolutely beautiful chocolate box thatched cottage, and I would look at it every single day. I would sometimes do a little diversion on my commute just to drive past it. And then one day, a Tillet sign appeared outside it. And I was on the phone within about five minutes and said, can I, can I move in? Do you take dogs? Because I already had a dog by then. And um, so I came and viewed it, I think Christmas Eve, and it was just perfect. And I was in by New Year's Day. That's fantastic. It was amazing. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. It's still quite cold, but you know. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here, which is a sort of, just one of those, you go where you land. And I landed here and this is very much our forever home. You know, we'll be here, you know, for the rest of our days, probably. The concept of someone traveling past a house daily, mm. uh, falling in love with it, and then having the chance to move in and buy it is um, it's sort of a modern day Hardy novel. <laughs> it's funny, we got married in this orchard that we're sitting in now, and lots of people said it was like something out of Hardy. Um, and this is quite, although we are Somerset and North Dorset, um, particularly if you go up the hill, it, the landscape and the sort of the, the vistas do get quite hardy-esque. Yeah. It's a lot of sky, a lot of mist, a lot of, lot of sheep. I know this isn't your first podcast. Uh, you've no. done a couple of others previously, haven't you? Do you listen to podcasts when you're out in the garden pottering? I have to be a bit careful with podcasts because I... I'm very ambitious and I'm very, I'm a relentless overachiever and I can tell if I start my day weeding, I spend a lot of my time weeding, uh, if I start my day with downloading lots of podcasts to listen to while I'm weeding, I know I'm in that zone of I feel like I need to improve myself and sometimes that's fine, sometimes that's inspirational and nourishing and that's nurturing and sometimes I need to say, do you know what, I'm just going to listen to Agatha Christie. <laughs> I'm just going to listen to Harry Potter on repeat. I'm just going to listen to something that is just soothing and is just, there's no agenda, there's no expectation, it's improving me. And I have to be a little bit careful with that. But yes, whenever I do a long journey, I will always sit down and download lots of podcasts first. You've written that you come from a family of NHS workers. Yeah. Did that include your parents? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, now my husband. <laughs> uh, what particular was, was it that your parents did? Um, so my parents met in the hospital that I was born in. Um, my father was then a, I assume, a fairly junior doctor and my mum was quite a senior nurse. Uh, my father is a psychiatrist. My mum, well, he's just on the cusp of retiring, but that's where I inherit my overachieving from. So he's not doing very well with retiring. Um, and my mother is a retired nurse. Yeah. What are some of your earliest memories? Oh, <laughs> um, falling off a horse and my father saying, it's only a cracked rib, they won't do anything. 
because that's what happens when your parents are healthcare professionals is you seek no healthcare attention at all. Um, that was probably one of them. Uh, I do remember, I do remember, for some reason, I don't know why or where my mum was, but I remember being sitting outside my father's office when he was seeing a patient and being very young and hearing screaming and being quite frightened by that. I've got an older brother and I remember he was there as well, but um, yeah, that, yeah, I can, yeah, I remember that quite vividly. It's probably about six, seven, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I was in a psychiatric unit as a child, <laughs> but I was. Was that a frequent kind of visit? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, uh, my mum was very much, she, she arranged her career so that she did the majority of childcare. But um, it was definitely there. There was definitely a sense of um, that there was sort of risk around and that I think that was something I probably got to the stage. So my, my, my dad, although he isn't a forensic psychiatrist, he did do a lot of work in Broadmoor and places like that. And so I think I had a very subconscious awareness that really bad things happen sometimes and people did really bad things. So it wasn't frequent that I saw it and was exposed to it, but I think it was there. Yeah. What kind of things were you into as a child? Horse riding, was that a, was that a hobby? <laughs> or was that just... Yeah, no, it was, absolutely was. Absolutely was. Um, I rode a lot up until about 25. I rode a lot. This is going to sound like such a cliche and like it's such a boring thing to say, but it feels more relevant than ever. I read all the time. So my father being a psychiatrist had some um, fairly interesting ideas about raising children and how to create um, <laughs> socially adaptive children. So we didn't have a television growing up. And so I read voraciously um, and I think that's only just coming back to me now that I'm writing more and more and more. And lots of people say to me, oh, you know, gardening must be the thing that's so nourishing and therapeutic. And actually, gardening is the hard bit. Gardening is a bit of a slog and it rains and it, you know, things die. And writing about gardening is the most beautiful thing in the world. Writing generally is now the thing that I feel most fulfilled doing. And I think that's because I just absorbed for the first sort of 20 years of my life, just absorbed words. How early did you realise that you had an ability to be able to kind of read and understand people as well as read and understand books? <laughs> um, I don't know when I knew that I could do it, but I could do it. Um, one of the most significant moments of my life was when I was learning how to do um, assessments of infant mental health and I watched a six-week-old baby trying to engage their postnatally depressed mother and the mother was incredibly flat and just very sad and very unresponsive and the child was just I mean she was tiny tiny little girl six weeks old and was performing desperately trying to get something to get a connection 
And I was like, oh my God, that's me. And there's an awful statistic, like something like 95% of clinical psychologists have postnatal depressed mothers because children learn incredibly quickly to accommodate to their parents' limitations and difficulties. And there is something about postnatal depression in mothers that the babies learn to emotionally caregive. And in order to emotionally caregive, you have to be able to read the mood of the other. And so I didn't know this is what I was doing. I did not know that I had this survival strategy, which was also a talent. But after about 45 minutes, I can sit in a room with someone. If I'm listening, and if not, I don't do this at parties, I have to reassure people, I, I don't do this just as a sort of an everyday thing. But if I'm sitting in a room with someone, at, you know, in my job, I can hear them thinking. And if people get stuck on a word, I know exactly what the word is. and I know exactly where they're going. and I know exactly what the sort of the profile of their strategies is, how they dealt with what they were given um, and how that just trickles across one's life. So I don't think I knew that I was really good at it until I started practicing sort of post-qualification. So gosh, I guess 30. And then it was a bit like I, I just sort of assumed that everyone could do this, but it turns out not everyone can. That whole question, that whole discussion, and you, you spoke earlier on about inheriting uh, overachieving from your father's <laughs> side as well. Yeah. I mean, that opens up a much bigger conversation uh, that, that psychologists love or maybe love to hate around the whole nature nurture mm. piece. So I, I think from what you were saying, that ability then is something that, you know, was sort of branded in you from mm. quite, a, from, you know, a very, very early age. Yes. Uh, my dad can't read people at all. <laughs> so it's not genetic. <laughs> I've got his IQ um, and I've got his knees. Um, <laughs> but I'm afraid. Uh, I have my paternal grandmother's nose. But my, um, I think, yeah, the empathy is, you know, all babies are born with the architecture to connect. It's like it's the most fundamental human, you know, thing. And when you you can do it with newborn babies, you know, you have your own children, you know they're just there waiting to be connected to and to connect. All of our survival is determined by that capacity. Um, yeah, my dad's not got much of it though, so it's not, it's not him. <laughs> In your career as a clinical psychologist, can you briefly outline what it is that you do mm. day to day. So I am the clinical director of a residential family assessment centre. So I work with a team of social workers and family support workers. We have houses in Taunton where parents who are in care proceedings, so where a court has said you pose a risk to a child, they come and are assessed as to whether or not they can um, keep their children they can make the changes they need to be safe parents and they can either go back to the community and live as a family or um, the child will have to be placed in the care system so I do risk assessments I do psychological assessments so I write reports on people and I give evidence in court on um, where I think they're at and what should happen but I also support my team in in helping parents do the best that they can 
Most people uh, don't have jobs that involve confronting that type of trauma, I guess, mm. on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, as well as the normal aspects of getting ready for work, you know, having a shower, <laughs> putting your clothes on. Do you have to prepare emotionally for, for what's ahead of you each day? No. There are aspects of the job that I find incredibly difficult and it's never the bits people think it is um, the bits that I find really hard are when the system lets people down where I get oddly I very very rarely get personally attacked by parents which you know I would understand if they did but they don't generally because usually by that point I've got a relationship with them um, I've had some horrendous experience with lawyers. <laughs> I just like, I don't, this is not in the interest of the child that you are abusing me so horrendously for hours and hours and hours in the witness box. Um, so actually those, you, of course you have to prepare yourself for court appearance. I mean, they are, and it is right that we have a justice system in this country where it is robust. But when I'm getting an absolute kicking and I'm thinking this is just, dreadful and it's so obvious that this is you know like it should be those are hard but I think I'm luckier than many because I'm in a position of power where I can do a lot about it if something is wrong and something is sad and something is tragic and something you know that that people have experienced huge amounts of trauma I'm in a position that I can either protect children from horrendous future experiences or I can you know, try and help the people that that are trying to make the changes that they need to make. And I think I find that better than just sort of hopelessness. Yeah, but I've heard some very sad stories. One big trend in terms of the way in which people are psychologically affected by the world around them that's very much coincided with your career is the rise of social media, mm. um, and in particular the effect that it has on children and young people. How has that played a role in sort of the evolving way in which you deal with, with children, with, with those who are sort of growing up in this, this age? It's not in the way you think. So there was a very famous um, psychological experiment called the still face experiment, where a very small child was put in a car seat and um, is just interacting with his mummy and it's very sweet and lovely and then the mother is asked to stop responding and to make a still face and the baby gets incredibly distressed and then sort of just collapses in this sort of really hopeless position and then you know they feel sorry for the baby and the mother sort of starts to reinteract and the baby's a bit like oh you're back are you okay and then it's all fine again the thing that will mess up so many children it's not instagram it's not social media it's not the thin people it's not the filters it's the fact that when children look at their parents and their parents are looking at a phone the damage of that is so profoundly horrendous i just i can't even i can't even imagine what is happening to their brains in those moments so actually my i'm so scared about that about what babies are just children they need presence. They need grown-ups to be there and actually to look up and see an adult face that is so absent is a trauma. It is horrendously traumatic. That is what will make the difference to the next generation. 
Sorry, I feel like I'm freaking out. No, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think there is that period between, you know, when Facebook sort of properly arrived in about 2007 or whatever. So what's that? 14, yeah. 15 years ago, nearly. And so it was wholly embraced by, by young people, by young parents, mm. without really any consideration of like, is this good for us? Mm. And so my hope is really that people who have been through that experience and, and sort of are now having babies and mm. having children are, are more in tuned to the fact that actually, you know, you have to, mm. you have to moderate your behavior on there, you have to moderate how much. But it's so pre-verbal. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, if it happens from such an early age, it's just that is the expectation of that's how eye contact works. That's how connected works. That's, you know, children are meant to give out a cue and then the response that they get shapes consistently. And I, I think, you know, yeah, I'm, I think that's, a huge concern. I think actually for a lot of children, although there's a lot of, you know, there's issues around cyberbullying and lots of things like that, it offers up opportunities to children that it just exposes them to cultural narratives that they just never, you know, if you grow up in a rural area or, you know, a community that's quite isolated or you are slightly different to the people around you, that that has all gone now. There, You can reach anyone, anywhere, anyhow. Of course, that comes with risk, but, you know, it also comes with hugely positive things. I hope. Let's talk about gardening Ooh. for a bit. <clears throat> change, change tack <laughs> slightly. Was gardening something that you took up to contrast with your day job or has it always been kind of a bit of a passion for you? It's always been in my life. It's always been a, a thing. And as I look back now, it, again, it's a bit, a bit like what we were talking about earlier it just feels like I assumed everyone did that I just assumed that everyone spent their childhood going around gardens <laughs> and just knew how to grow things and just sort of imbibed that you know as, as part of a, a childhood experience but um no and it it absolutely didn't come as as any way of trying to uh sort of offset the day job what actually happened was I had gone from when I started my job in, oh gosh, 2009, I realised I loved it, realised I was really good at it, realised it was the only thing I ever wanted to do and went at it completely hell for leather and was completely immersed in it. And then one day sort of arrived at work and found out that we'd employed someone who was going to restructure our service and who didn't like me at all, didn't like psychologists, didn't like me particularly. Um couldn't sack me because I had anything wrong but basically sent me home and just said get out don't want to see you again um and I thought the world had ended I really thought like it was one of those sort of just so dramatic I feel like gravity's not really working so I realized that I'd poured everything I had my identity my time my day my you know self into this job um and jobs don't love you back so I sort of sat at home and thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So we had this really weird patch of land, which had nothing in it but thistles and docks and nettles. I said, I'm going to plant flowers. <laughs> I'm going to become a flower farmer. Screw you all. <laughs> and um, it was a bit of a joke for a long time. And then it wasn't a joke anymore. And then it got bigger than my day job. And then it just absolutely took off and 
it is very much, it is, a, I hate the word side hustle, but um, it's a business as much as my day job is sort of my career. And it's beautiful and wonderful, but it's also really successful and really big. <laughs> so, so now I have two full-time jobs. And you write on the side. And I write on the side, yeah. yeah. To be fair, to be fair, I have, um, I'm not full-time at work anymore. It became completely unfeasible, but yeah, I've been slowly dropping a day every yeah. so often. You call your approach part of the slow flower movement. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, essentially that means, a bit like the slow food movement, is that we have lost a sense that flowers that are grown locally are important and better. We have become so used to walking into a supermarket and the doors slide open and there's a bank of um, sort of completely out of season, just flown in, imported, grown in all sorts of different conditions that we would um, find acceptable, sprayed, unscented, just a product. It's a loss leader for lots of supermarkets as well. So, you know, and people just grab them without necessarily making the connection between what it is that they're spending their money on and growing practices that might occur across the world, which we wouldn't necessarily um, want to support. But there wasn't really an alternative that, to that for a long time. So the slow flower movement is about we can support people to grow flowers in a local, seasonal, ethical way, but people have got to really appreciate the need for that. Um, and that that is, requires a bit of a mind shift for people to understand why that's important for our communities and our climate as well. And I suppose the image of, you know, as you say, the sort of lined up, very sanitised, very sort of put together mm. approach to, to flowers that like the supermarkets have, it's kind of that this is, this is the perfection bit, whereas mm. the land around us is very much a sort of em embracing imperfection to some extent which I suppose is what you do when you when you go more locally when you go more seasonal not everything is going to look exactly how you want it to but mm. there's there's the benefit of doing the right thing by nature totally and it's sort of wonky carrot syndrome which is um, you know it took a very an articulated narrative it took people to talk about why is that our desire for uniformity and perfection in our food in our flowers in you know everything we, we, that is a natural product is actually really damaging. Um, and it's, it's, it's a complicated sort of system. And I think flowers were, you know, a little bit of a, of a step behind food in that. So um, the British flowers movement was very much, it was lots of people in a lot of ways like me, it's lots of women, lots of small businesses trying to grow to fulfill a need. And florists were saying, well, we can't have that because you haven't got 300 of this that all look identical. And so sort of a section of, of the industry said, oh, OK, we'll try and do that. We'll put up some more polytunnels. We'll try and produce 300 delphiniums for one Saturday at the end of July that all look identical because that's what you want for an event. And the rest of us went, why would you want that? Why, why is it that you think that in order for something to be beautiful... It's got to be unblemished and perfect. Um, and my own personal obsession is mottling on petals. The most beautiful, my roses have got rained on and they've just got these most beautiful marks on them now where they got damaged by the rain. And that, 
that couldn't be more exquisite to me. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind the the very popular Japanese sentiment of the kind of wabi-sabi yeah. thing, the taking pleasure in imperfection. Yeah. Is that something that you can square away with your other overachieving perfectionist self? Yes, I can, because I think the moment where I found out that wabi-sabi was a feeling and not an aesthetic, I was like, oh, yeah, I get that. When something is so perfectly imperfect, which my house is very perfectly imperfect, <laughs> it's, it's all lime and wood and dents and dog hair, but it's so perfectly imperfect, I can feel it in my fingers. Like I can feel it in my tummy. I can feel that sensation of that is just perfect because it's imperfect. And I just, I adore that. Um, yeah. And I have such a, I have quite a consistent aesthetic, which is, I think, not really wary of cultural appropriation here, but it, it's not consciously designed around that. But that is very much there. If you want perfect high streets, uniform perfection, either in me as a person or in the product that I that I produce, the chances are you're not going to get it. It might look perfect. It's probably a typo in it somewhere. <laughs> And that's fine. I was going to bring up your your Instagram, mm. which does have quite a distinct aesthetic, I think. Yes, it does. Um, what's your inspiration for that? I live in a pitch black cottage. Uh, there is um, one place in my cottage which has enough light that I can take a photo. It just turns out that's the most perfect, soft, uh, east-facing, directional light and um, because of that, that's all my photos are taken on one sort of less than a square metre of wall next to one particular window. And so all my photos look the same. So I had a videographer came, he did some filming in the, in the field and he was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure how to get this to work. It was the hottest day. And we walked, we'd, we'd done all the field stuff and, you know, we walked into the house and he went, oh, I'm in your Instagram. <laughs> I was like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. I was saying before we started recording that one of the things I was going to bring up was um, was Dutch Golden Age mm. uh, still life, which was very much. I just get that vibe when I look at yeah. your your pictures. Yeah, and it's it, that's a particular type of art that I love. Yes. So so to see like a, a Peter Kleiss yeah. kind of style picture of a squash, I'm like, yeah, I love that people are doing that. Yeah, and I, funny enough, I was having a chat with somebody the other day and um, he said, oh, well, it's, of course, it's really important to show yourself in your pictures and your Instagram. You don't really show your face that much. I think you should really think about getting a bit more of you into it. And I went, ah. he said, no, 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 we'll just have a look at your, you know, number of likes for you and number of likes for, oh, oh, your pictures of squash do quite well. <laughs> it's like people, people don't come to me Yes, they come to me for me. Like my personality is all over my business. I'm not in any way impersonal, but yeah, the pictures that people want to see are, I love those, those that blue squash, the grey, oh, it's beautiful. That's what people want from me. You talked a little bit about the sort of journey from flowers being, you think you said a, a joke through yeah. to now, now a, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a big and successful business for you. What was this watershed moment then on that journey? I think there's probably, there's been some external 
watershed moments, but I think the probably the internal watershed moment was actually was when I stopped doing flowers and I started doing seeds. So um, when I grew flowers, I sort of, I looked at what other people were doing and I thought that was the only way, which took me a couple of years to work out that wasn't true. But what people do is they grow flowers and they do the odd wedding and they sell, you know, some garden gate flowers and they might do some wholesale to local florists. And, you know, there's whole Facebook groups of people saying, how do I do this and how do I do it well? And so that's what I did. And, and the weddings got bigger and bigger and bigger. And my job is not such that you can, you know, if you've got a wedding on a Saturday, you're doing the flowers on the Friday and there's no, there's no wiggle room at all. If my job rings me up and says, quick, we need you on a Friday, I'm stuffed. So, uh, so I thought this is, this really isn't working. This is getting really stressful and I'm just not enjoying it. And I did a workshop at a local beautiful house and garden and I got up at 5am to cut the roses for it and it absolutely hammered with rain and all the roses just got completely mashed. And I thought it's got to be an easier way than this. So I invented a product which makes me happier than anything else in the world. Seeds are the most wonderful idea that nature ever came up with. And we sell them in really hideous packages in garden centres with really oversaturated photographs on the front. And I thought, I'm going to sell seeds. And I did. And they sit there in my fridge. I can pack them in advance and I put them in the post. They never die. They never wilt. Occasionally they might, you know, not do as well for people as they'd hoped. But And it just, and it was my thing. And no one else was doing it. And I felt like I'd won the lottery. And I still do in lots of ways. So that was, I think, early 2017, I launched my seeds. And it has just been amazing. And you are a seed merchant. I am a Somerset seed merchant. The word merchant, I love. It does, <laughs> it sounds like, again, something from about 500 years yeah. ago. That you, you know, you travel the world. <laughs> Yeah. Or like a part of a Russian caravan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What it means is I sit with a bowl and a teaspoon, like just dividing up poppy seed into 2,000 little envelopes. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. That makes me sound like a dealer. I'm, I'm not a dealer either. I'm a, yes, merchant is a better, is a better yes. word. <laughs> is, there a, is there a merchant's guild or something else? antiquated like that <laughs> i should probably join it if there is um i don't think there's a seed merchant skill but now you've said that i feel like i should start one there's probably a seed merchant house somewhere in london yeah i'd have to smash the patriarchy though so i'd yeah you know I'd have to. last year you launched gather i did um can you tell me a bit more about that oh gather's just been amazing so gather is a monthly membership where people sign up and they just get to be part of my world. So going back to the idea of actually the thing that, that I find so wonderful is writing and increasingly photography. Photography is not in my history at all. And it's very much a new skill that I've developed, but have loved developing. Um, as in, I can take one picture and I can take it really well. Luckily, it's the picture that, that does well on Instagram. Um, and so people have exclusive access to my writing and my images and loads of, some of it's practical stuff. Some of it's, you know, how to, 
you know, get things to germinate and how to get things to grow and, and stuff like that. But actually, I think there is enough places on the internet which will tell you how to do things, but very few which will just offer you escapism and relief and beauty and just a sense of connection but without expectation and so that's what gather is it's just a place for people to just be a bit soothed you mentioned connection um, mm. and obviously as as social beings connection's always been important but perhaps even more so over the last 18 months mm. um is that something that you've seen kind of come to the fore and and be expressed by your members yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I found very freeing is my day job. I write as a job. My, I write reports. I write court reports. I write narratives about people's lives, but I do it in an incredibly formal way. And Gather has allowed me to just really play with writing in a way that is about opening myself up for connection. It is about everything I write is as if I was writing to one person. Um, to the point where occasionally I send people emails and they said, oh, sorry, I thought it was your newsletter. <laughs> like, because they all start with, hello, lovely. Um, and I think people have needed that and they have... But when I say connection without expectation, I think you can just step into the space and I ask nothing of you. Lots of people reply to my newsletters or they send me messages, but there's no expectation that you do anything. It's not a learning course. It's not, you know, there are not modules. It's nothing like that. It is just come in, just be here, just enjoy the space, hear my voice and then get on with your day. And yes, lots of people have said it has absolutely kept them going in difficult times. Speaking of lockdown and difficult times, over the course you wrote a couple of books. I did, yeah. As one does. Yes. And in one of them you talk about the tunes that our minds play, mm. which I loved. I think it's a really vivid metaphor. Mm. Where did that come from? I'm so unmusical. It's an odd metaphor for me to have chosen, um, but it comes from acceptance commitment therapy, which is a third wave cognitive behavioral approach, ACT. Um, and it, it, that's much more about the stories that we tell ourselves. But I think sometimes it is less, it doesn't feel like a story. I always have to really listen to my brain to sort of find out what the story is. It's much more as if there is a piece of music playing in the background and you instantly get the sense. Even if you just hear a couple of bars, you know what the piece of music is, if it's very familiar to you. Um, and it sort of is there as a whole. So I think that's, for me, is a, is a better metaphor. But it is like there's a radio. I mean, everyone's head has a radio on all the time playing something yeah so that's where that comes from and as part of that you talk about you talk about the concept of sort of managing your mind mm. which uh, for me like 
digging out my old philosophy undergrad mm. uh, theory in terms of Descartes and dualism and the mm. mind-body problem. The mind and the brain being two different things. Yeah. Yeah. I think there has been, there's been a real shift in how we understand. I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back to go forward. There's been a real shift, I think, in how we started to understand how emotion and thought are interlinked. And actually, the, the very traditional CBT model is you think something and based on that thought, the feeling emerges because of the meaning you've made of a situation, which I sort of get. But also, I think there's an increasing awareness of just how physiological feelings are, that actually they are so much of it is located in sort of the endocrine systems and, you know, feedback systems and things like that. And all we have is the brain, really. All we have is the neurophysiology of that and everything is created within that space. So I remember reading about how people who have very, very euphoric religious experiences, you can see it in the temporal lobe. And people who see patterns in everything, you know, in clouds and trees, they see faces in, you know, they've got a fizzy temporal lobe. They've just got a bit of their brain that's just a bit more overactive than others. And actually, I think... As I, maybe as I get older, also I think there's probably more awareness of how there are so many more developmental phases of our lives than we think there are. We sort of think there's child, teenage, adult, and that's sort of it. And I think physically, physiologically, culturally, emotionally, socially, there are there's so many more phases to that. And our psychological functioning can really be located in lots of those shifts. And some of those are physical, somatic experiences. Hormonal experiences also. I know what I eat massively affects how I feel about things. I know that. Doesn't always mean I eat the right things, but... Um, going back to the nature-nurture thing, the interplay, the interface, the interaction between the mind and body is almost so... They're so intertwined. I do not know how we pull those apart. And I think one of the real limitations of the way we think about mental health is firstly, people don't really understand it when they use the term, um, and also there's too much mapping it onto physical health but also without understanding that physical health and mental health are inextricably entwined yeah so I've probably changed over the years one of my favorite books um when I was training was Descartes era by Antonio Damasio and I did a lot of behavioral neurology when I was sort of first starting out and then occasionally forget everything I know and then have to remember it again but yeah one of the things that you know has very much been been spoken about during this pandemic is mindfulness mm. and the ability for us to to take a, a step 
take a minute and, and think about our thoughts, mm. which as a species is pretty much unique mm. to us. Yeah. But there's, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword to the period that we've had because thinking about our thoughts and having that distance and slowing everything down is a really good thing mm. for us. And it, it speaks to the sort of anti social media stuff that we were talking about before and if you if you sort of pair your life back to back to a minimum you're able to you know spend a little bit more time um on those things but at the same time without those connections without those societal mm. experiences and and the relationships to actually kind of back that up you've got a really positive thing in one way but mm. it's also a really negative thing in the other and it just hasn't really balanced itself out mm. and also what we do when we when we it's called reflective capacity that ability to reflect to sort of i think this but i can think about my thoughts which is sort of metacognition i can feel something but i can feel about a feeling i can think about a feeling i can feel about a thought you know there's all of those intricacies and interplays and but the problem is lots of people if they have not had a compassionate containing positive person that reflected back to them when they were thinking about their thoughts initially and the learning that they were a thinking person not just a, a sort of doing bundle of body then actually what people think about their own thoughts can be incredibly pejorative and very negative and so much judgmentalness about I shouldn't be feeling this way I shouldn't be thinking this way why can't I just stop thinking this way and what we know is when you start to try and control like that Actually, you can spiral very quickly into lots of other, you know, thought suppression does not work. It's why, you know, the books that I've written are about acceptance commitment therapy. Actually, it's noticing the story that your brain is telling you and just letting it go. Um, and yes, we've been we've been faced with this huge stressor in terms of, you know, threat to our survival and our brain is meant to go into overdrive for that. It's meant to go a bit crazy because that's what our brains do to keep us alive um and yes having having a sense of groundedness in relationships and groundedness in each other but also having some compassionate sort of a compassionate stance for ourselves as well as others has been hugely important you live with a lot of different labels for yourself mm. um, in terms of all the different things you do do people find that amalgamation difficult to get their heads around? People rationalise it very quickly into um, a very good, bad split. People are very comfortable with the narrative of darkness and light. So my job must be really tough and really hard. My flower business must be really lovely. And actually the reason I started doing seeds is because I was driving to work on a Monday morning pathetically grateful to be going to work because <laughs> I was exhausted and stressed and overwhelmed and just going to work was like I could do this I could do this with my eyes shut you know I just have to sit here share a meeting write a report see a parent you know assess a child it's fine this is easy um I think people are intrigued and I feel like I quite seamlessly inhabit the two worlds, but I don't, I'm very mindful about not talking too much about my work in my business. And I'm mindful of not talking a huge amount about my business at my work. People are mildly intrigued, mm -hmm. I think. 
And I think I have to be very careful because I, I had, I did a, an interview with, um, a florist in Hebden Bridge, Sarah Statham, who used to be a criminal barrister. And she said that she was told pretty much in her first week when she was thinking of retraining as a florist, don't ever mention it. Who wants to have their wedding done by a criminal barrister? So she never just, she just never mentioned it. And it was only because I do what I do that she, she sort of told me. And I said, oh my God, that's the most interesting thing about you. <laughs> She's amazing, flourish, very talented, but that's really interesting. And so I'm, 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 I tread a bit of a fine line between this is my truth. This is my authenticity. This is, this is, this is my life. Um, versus occasionally people say it's too upsetting. And we don't hear about it. And me thinking, this is the thing that makes me me. Talking about this feels important to me because it's sort of what, even if they're not asking, it's sort of what people want to know about. People are really intrigued. Uh, and then people freak out and say, can you tell what I'm thinking? And I have to say, yes, I, yes, I can. Yes. You were also telling me about your new writing endeavour, uh, the gardening book. Yes. So what's, when's that happening? Um, when, what can we see uh, in the future? So it was written and mostly, it was commissioned before all of this happened and, and lockdown happened. So I wrote it over the course of probably two years. So it's what I really wanted to write was a bit like Gather. It's reassuring escapism. So it's not a how-to book. I think, again, there's enough, there's enough of Google that's dedicated to, you know, telling you what to do. It's a handbook of how to enjoy the process of gardening and to understand that you won't get it right first time and things will die and things will you know not work and that's absolutely fine you just have to be in the moment appreciating it for what it is so it's a combination of some practical how-tos lots of journal entries which is sort of my signature style and some just sort of reflective uh pieces about the different aspects of gardening it's called grow and gather and it was uh, photographed by dean hearn who's a very talented photographer from sussex and it's out on september the 16th grace we're now going to play somerset who's who Yes. Which is a game where I'm going to give you the names of people with a Somerset connection uh, and I'm going to give you two options for their a very potted biography. It's literally a sentence. Yeah. Uh, and you have to tell me which you think is the real identity yep. uh, behind that person. Yeah. Okay. I'm horrendously nosy and I, I love characters. So Fab. this is going to be, I'm very excited about this. Fab. Okay. Uh, so there's five names and your first one is Martin Ash. Right. So was Martin Ash, or is Martin Ash, A, a Crufts winning dog trainer from the 1970s, or B, a percussionist better known by his stage name, Sam Spoons? Crufts. It's Spoons. Oh. Sorry. Not even a good psychologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. On to number two. Elizabeth Chant. Was Elizabeth Chant the first woman to walk the whole southwest coast path or a landscape artist whose family emigrated to Minnesota? Landscape artist. Correct. All right. 
number three is Jessie Honey. Ooh, what a name. Good name. Yeah. Have was... you made up the name as well? <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, was Jessie Honey A, the 2010 Mastermind Champion in the UK, or B, a member of the 90s boy band Caught in the Act? <laughs> A is correct. Yeah, I thought B was just even with that name was too implausible. <laughs> there is a '90s boy band called Caught in the Act, uh, but Jesse Honey was not in it. No, no, no. Uh, all right, number four is Adela Breton. Ooh. So was Adela Breton A a food writer credited with bringing mayonnaise to the UK, or B? an archaeologist known for her work on Mayan temples. B. Is correct. I've hit my stride now. Yeah. I've got your tells. Yeah. You're, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're three out of five. So yeah, that's not bad. It's definitely a win. Uh, so last one. Let's see if we can get to four. Uh, last one, number five, is Paul Dukes. So was Paul Dukes A, an MI6 officer and author, or B, the driver of the last tram in Bath? B. It's A. Oh! Paul Jukes was a spy. Yeah. And a writer. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah. I'm barely better than chance. Okay, <laughs> three out of five is pretty much 50-50 with a bit of rounding up. But you've learned something. I have. Yeah. Learned five things. Grace, thank you. Before we go, um, where can people find out more about you, about the work you're doing, your writing, your gardening, everything else? The best place to find me is my newsletter. So I send a newsletter out every Sunday night at eight o'clock, which is just my story of what I've been doing that week and what might be going on in the garden. And you can sign up for that at my website, which is gracealexanderflowers.co.uk. And it'd be really lovely to have some new people join. Grace, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar. You can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.